Tonight I want to do things a little bit differently than maybe I have done in the past, and, and I hope that some grace will be extended to me tonight to do this. I believe it was last week, Brother Luke talked to you guys about the gospel. And toward the end of his study, he mentioned to you a chart, Problem Solution Analysis. And that is a chart that I made. It's a chart that I use uh, from time to time when I study with people. Uh, probably 90% of, of, of my work is involved with people in their homes, one-on-one -on -one studies. Uh, we call it personal evangelism. Tonight I want to present that study to you the way that I would present the study to anyone else. And I hope that it will be beneficial for you to see how it is that I will present this study. And if it's something that you feel could be useful to you uh, to share the gospel with others, by all means, please use it. It's just a tool in the toolbox. And, and we need to have multiple tools in our toolbox because no one tool fits every job. And so this is just another tool. So tonight, I hope as we go through this, you will find this to be useful to you in some way. The title of the study is Problem Solution Analysis. Now, this is not a fancy title uh, <laughs> by no means, but when I began to sit down and I thought about this, uh, the way that this study came to be was I had about 30 minutes and I was going to go over to a lady's house and I was going to study the gospel with her. And so I sat down with a 5 by 8 index card and I began to work this thing up. And I tried to think about it as, as clear as I could. And, and this is the product of it. And what I decided to do was I needed to talk to her about the problem. And we needed to discuss a solution to it. And we needed to analyze the problem and analyze the solution together. And so when I go and study with people, that's the approach that I want to take with them is we need to address the problem. A lot of times when we go and talk with people, we want to give them the good news right away. But, but that's not near as beneficial to them. They need the bad news first so that the good news can be good news. Otherwise, it'll just be news. So let's address the problem together tonight. Isaiah 59 and 2, a very common scripture that, that we're familiar with. We use often. Luke used it in his sermon last week. Isaiah identifies to us the problem. He says that your iniquities, and they have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid His face from you that He will not hear. So the first thing that I want to do when I begin this study with someone is I want to create for them in their mind the weight, the heaviness of sin. Because sin is a real problem. And when we talk about it with people in the world today, it's laughed at, it's mocked, it's ridiculed, it's joked about, but it's not funny. It's not funny. Because the reality of sin is absolutely devastating. It's devastating, folks. And I hope you believe that. So we need to identify the problem with them. We need to explain to them what sin does. The Bible says that sin separates. It separates us from the God who formed us. The God who formed us in our mother's womb, who knew us before our mother knew us, who numbered the hairs on our head, it drives a wedge between us and Him. And that's not a pretty picture. So what I like to do is I like to try my best to paint for them a picture as clearly as possible of what it looks like to not have God in your life. Now, I want to tell you something, folks. I was not raised in the church, so this is a reality for me. Okay, I know what life without God looks like and how ruthless it is. 
And when I'm talking with people about this very thing, most people that I'm talking to, they understand that as well. That life without God in it is absolutely ruthless. And so we begin to talk to them about things like pain. Now most people understand pain. But there's pain in this world you cannot get rid of. And you cannot escape it. We talk about suffering and heartache, loneliness, anger, rage, wrath. No peace. No hope. A hopeless life. People understand what that looks like. How about guilt of sin? They certainly know what that looks like. They experience that day to day. And we want to paint for them what that looks like without God, but with God in our lives as well. And when we realize that sin destroys us, it it ruins us, it, it makes us broken, the first thing that has to happen when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ is healing has to take place. And that's where it begins. Healing. And then you have hope. And of course, we're taught properly how to love. How about peace with God? That's true peace. Happiness, joy, comfort, even a family. And those are things that maybe you may take for granted as generational Christians who've been raised in the church for generations. But these things strike home. They strike home with people. And so I want to do my best to describe to them what life looks like without God in it. And then I want to reassure them that life is better with God in it. And so we contrast these two things. But we absolutely have to make the point to them That all of these things that we discussed, that life looks like without God in it, is a result of sin and nothing short of it. It's because of sin. Now, when we talk about sin with people, we've got to define our terms. We have to. If we ask ten different people what sin is, you'll get ten different answers. I've done this, I've gotten every answer under the sun. I'm sure you have too. The Bible tells us what sin is. 1 John 3, 4. Whosoever committed sin transgresseth also the law, for the sin is the transgression of the law. Now listen, I'm a simple guy. I like simple illustrations, and when we're dealing with people, we need to try to make things simple. And so this is the way that I describe what sin is to people. You're traveling out here on I-27 North. The speed limit is 75 miles an hour. Say you got a lead foot, and you like to drive at 80 or 85. You're operating outside the parameters of the law. The law allowed you to drive 75, you're driving 80. God gave us the law for our life, the Bible. He says, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to conduct yourself. This is how I want you to solve problems. This is how I want you to deal with people from day to day. And and the message that I want you to share with them. And if you operate outside of that, the parameters of God's law, you're in lawless territory. You've committed lawlessness, as the New Testament, or the New King James says. You've transgressed, you've gone against, you've violated the law of God, and you've committed sin. We need to define our terms. Because we need to know what we're talking about. We can tell people how bad sin is every day, but if they don't know what it is, it really doesn't matter. So they need to know what sin is. Now, in Psalms 5, verses 4 and 5, the psalmist says, For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. I always ask people when I'm studying with them if they've heard the saying that we need to love the sinner but hate the sin. Most people have. 
Maybe you haven't heard that, but most people have heard that. I've heard that probably all my life. That we need to love the individual, love the person, but, but hate what the person does, the activity that the person is involved in. We need, to, we need to be displeased with that. God hates workers of iniquity, friends. Who are the workers of iniquity? We want to throw a smoke screen up in our own mind and we want to think that we're better than what we really are, but in reality, if we're workers of iniquity, friends, God hates us. That's not a pretty sight. A lot of people want to live their life in such a way that they can go and do whatever they want to do, whatever pleases them, their mind and their flesh, like Paul says in Ephesians 2, and somehow, some way, think that God is still pleased with them. He's not. He's not. If you're a worker of iniquity, if you have a sin debt unpaid, He cannot be pleased with wickedness at all. And He will not look at us with favor. He won't. Notice 1 John 1, 5-8. John says, this is the message which we've heard of him and declared unto you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. But if we, talk, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another in the blood of Jesus Christ. His son cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Now, at this point, I want to focus on just verse 5. When I'm studying with people, of course, there's dialogue. There's no dialogue right here, okay? But there's dialogue. And, and, and I may use more of this text with someone, and I may use less of it with another. It's a judgment call. But I want to focus on verse 5. He says, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So watch this, friends. Isaiah 59 and 2, sin, iniquity, it separates man from God. It drives a wedge between us and the God who formed us in our mother's womb. Okay? And God cannot be pleased with evil, with sin, and with wickedness. He is a hater of workers of iniquity. That's what He is. Because He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He cannot be pleased with sin. At all. Now I want you to notice verse 6. If we say with our mouths that we have fellowship with Him. If we say that we are Christians. If we say that we are followers and disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ. But walk in darkness, the Bible says we're liars. We're a liar. And the truth is not in us. Sin is a problem. And it's a problem because God is good. This is probably the most important part of the study in some ways. I have found this to be a really, really important thing to do when I'm studying with people about sin. Sin is the most personal thing you have in your life. It's the one thing you don't want people to come up to you and talk about next to your money. We need to tell people that it's a universal problem. We don't need to go to people's houses, sit on their couch, sit with them around their kitchen table, and look down our ecclesiastical noses at them like we have our life figured out, because we don't. They need to know it's not a problem that they alone have. It's a universal problem. Sin is not a respecter of persons. It doesn't care who you are. It doesn't care what your background is or what your last name is or what ethnicity you are from or you are or what country you're from or language you speak. It doesn't matter. It's a terrible problem and everybody's got it. That's what people need to know when we're studying with them. 1 John 1.8 John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive who? Ourselves, friends. We deceive ourselves 
and the truth is not in us. This is the worst kind of deception that there is when you deceive yourself. Because if you say you have no sin, you're not deceiving God. God knows you. You stand naked and exposed before the throne of God every day. He sees you. You can't hide anything from Him. So if we say we have no sin, we're not deceiving Him. You're not even deceiving us. You're deceiving yourself. Because we all know in our heart of hearts that every one of us has got sin, don't we? I want you to notice Romans 3, 9 and 10. <clears throat> Brethren, I think Paul makes this crystal clear. He says, what then are we? Are we Jews better than they, Gentiles? No, in no wise. For we have before proved that both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. Who does that leave out? Who does that leave out? Does that leave me out? Does that leave Jay out? Sure don't. Verse 10, as it is written, there's none righteous, no, not one. Someone says, what does it mean to be righteous? Well, it means that you kept the law perfectly. And you can pray the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17. Give me that which is mine, which I had with you before the world was. None of us can pray that prayer. None of us. God, knows, God owes us nothing at all, not a thing, because none of us are righteous. We cannot in and of ourselves stand before God and say, you owe me salvation. You can't do it, because we're all under sin, and there's none of us righteous, not one. Now, this levels the ground, friends, and I think this is important, that when we're sitting across from somebody at their kitchen table, they understand that them and me, we're the same. There ain't not one of us righteous. Notice Mark 10 and 18. You're familiar with this passage. We call this passage, you know, the, the rich young ruler passage. He comes to Jesus and he says, Good master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There's none good but one. That is God. Jesus is not using this word good the way that you and I typically would. Not saying, yeah, I know David, he's a good old fella. I know Craig, that's a good man. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he uses this word good. He's talking about good in the sense that God is good. And God is good alone. And he is solely the standard for everything that is perfect, holy, righteous, just, and good. And so when we talk about us being good, we have to look to a standard. And we have to realize God is that standard by himself. And we have to see how it is that we live our life. Because we are not good. We're all under sin. There's not one of us that is righteous. And there's not one of us that is good. Sink in. Sink in. People need to know this. You need to know this. I need to know this. Now, we talked about 1 John 1.8. We say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. I've had people tell me that. Said, Neil, I don't know why you're here. I don't know why we're having this conversation. I, I don't have this problem that, that you're talking to me about. It's not something I struggle with. Don't have it. Don't need this conversation. Sure you have it, friend. And we need to be able to prove to people in a very simple way that they have sin. This is how I do it. I tell them, I'm going to ask you three questions, okay? And every time I do this study, I do this exactly. I tell them I'm going to ask three questions, and I'm going to answer them out loud, okay? And I'm going to say, you can answer the questions out loud if you want to, but you don't have to. Now, most of the time, when you put yourself in the hot seat, 
They're going to be comfortable enough to do it with you. I say most of the time. I've had a few people that didn't, and that's all right. The point's still the same. So, let's do it. Three questions. First question, have you ever used the Lord's name in vain? Have you ever used the Lord's name as a swear word, a cuss word, yes or no? I have, and I'm guilty. And the Bible says to not use the Lord's name in vain, Exodus 20 and 7. So I'm guilty. I'm sure a lot of you here are too. Have you ever lied? Yes or no? It doesn't matter what you lied about or why you lied. A lot of times people try to justify their sin and why they did what they did. It does not matter. Did you lie? I'm guilty. The Bible says that we should not bear false witness, Exodus 20 and 16. So, for example, what is, what is bearing false witness? Well, it'd be like Mitch saying that he saw me in Plainview this morning at 10.30, still in a car at the bank. Well, I couldn't have been because I was in free on at 10.30. That's bearing false witness. Third question. Have you ever stolen anything? Again, it doesn't matter what you stole. Big or small, it could be a piece of bubble gum or a Lamborghini. It doesn't make a difference. Did you take something that was not yours? I have. I'm guilty. The Bible says in Exodus 20 and 15, not to steal. So, watch this, okay? By my own admissions, and probably by yours as well, if they answer out loud, I tell them that. By my own admissions and by yours as well. The Bible says that Neil is a blaspheming, lying thief. It says I'm a blaspheming, lying thief. Does that sound good? Does that sound perfect? Does that sound sinless? No, it doesn't because it's not. I'm guilty. We're all under sin. <clears throat> Do you know what the penalty for violating any of these three commands were in the Old Testament? They'd pick up stones, dude, and stone you to death. That was it for you. End of the road. The penalty for sin has always been death. Romans 6 and 23, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Most of us in here are of a working age. We've worked, we've had jobs, we understand the concept of wages, of a price, of a penalty. The penalty, the price, the wage of sin, folks, is death. That's what it is. That's what it is. That's the bad news. That's the bad news, and people have to have that, okay? So that we can tell them the good news. The good news is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, and if we're willing to obey Him, He's willing to forgive our sin debt. That's good news, friends. Because the other end of the spectrum is, is you can pay it yourself. And you don't want to do that. <clears throat> Sin is the problem. It separates man from God, and it causes God to turn his face away. He no longer looks at us with favor, and it causes God not to hear us. But what takes away sin? This is the big question. What takes away sin? I want to show you something. Leviticus chapter 17 and verse 11, it says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul. For it is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. It's blood that makes the soul clean. And that's always been true. You say, why did you go back to Levitical law to show that? That's why. Because it's always been true. 
Blood has always been required for sin. This is trivial, but I want to point this out to you. And I've been pointing this out recently when I do these studies, and I think it's helpful. When we go all the way back to the garden and Adam and Eve sinned, and they heard God coming, and they go and they run and they hide themselves. God comes to Adam, and he says, boy, what are you doing? He says, I hid myself because I was naked. What? Who told you you were naked? What did they try to do? Well, they tried to cover up their nakedness. How would they do that? They sewed fig leaves together. Folks, anything that man ever does to try and cover up what he has done wrong, to try and cover up his sin, will always be insufficient. It will always be insufficient. So what did God do? Well, God took an animal. And he took the skin of that animal and he covered their nakedness and symbolically pointing us to Jesus Christ. Someday we could be covered in the blood of Jesus, his son. God made the first and the last sacrifice for sins. It's always been blood, but not the blood of bulls and goats today. Hebrews 10, verse 8, above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings and offerings for sin thou wouldest not, neither hast pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Verse 9, Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. That's he takes away the first testament, the first covenant, that he establishes the second, the new covenant, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. Folks, listen, once for all, it's sufficient. Once for all, there will be no need for a sacrifice ever again. You ever wonder why Jesus is seated at the right hand of God as our high priest? Because priests did not sit in the Old Testament because the work was never done. Jesus is seated, folks. His work is finished. His sacrifice is sufficient for all of mankind. Once and for all. Now, we get into the solution. Spoiler alert, it's Jesus. That ought not be a shock. Let's notice 1 John 1, 7. He says, but if we walk in the light... As he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, cleanses us from all sin. Does that say all but a few? Does that list a, a, a certain amount of sins, or a certain type of sins, and says this is what the blood of Christ is sufficient for? Everything else is on you, friend. It covers all sins, and that's important to tell people. Because I'm going to tell you something. My daddy says, God can't save me. I, I've done too much wrong. People need to understand that the blood of Jesus is not watered down, folks. It is powerful, and it will cleanse us of all of our sins. I asked this question. <laughs> Jessie doesn't like this question. She says it's not clear. I agree with her. It's not very clear. But I'm going to add some clarity. What blood cleanses? Was it the blood that flowed through his veins while he lived? No. It wasn't. Notice John 19, 32 to 34. This is John's account of Jesus' crucifixion, okay? Verse 32, Then came the soldiers and brake the legs of the first and of the other which were crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was dead already, they brake not his legs. But one of the soldiers with a spear pierced his side, and forthwith there came out blood and water. Now, let's talk about this for a minute. I'm sure most of you here have some idea about what crucifixion looked like. But why did they come to the first and the second and break their legs, but when they came to Jesus, they didn't break his legs? Well, people say, well, because of the prophecy. Well, sure. 
Sure, there was a prophecy said that not a bone in his body be broken. But let's think about this in this context logically. Why did they not break Jesus' legs? Verse 33, when they came to Jesus, they saw that he was dead already. There's no need to break the legs of a dead man on a cross. Because the way crucifixion worked is if you could not suspend yourself, lift yourself up to take a breath, you'd die. So when you got too tired, you were too exhausted, or they break your legs, you died. They didn't have to break his legs because he's already dead. But instead, what did they do? Well, one of the soldiers with a spear came by and he stabbed him in his heart. We know that he stabbed him in his heart because there's a sack of fluid around the heart. There's a name for it. I can't pronounce it. Google it later, okay? It pierced his heart, pierced that sack of water, pulled the spear out, blood and water came out. Why'd they do that? Why'd they stab him in his heart? Well, this man said, in three days I'm going to come forth from the grave. I'm going to destroy the temple. There won't be a a stone left standing. And they said, if he's dead, he can't come forth from the grave. We're going to see to it. We're going to make sure. We're We're going to take some extra steps here so that we know this Nazarene is dead. And if he comes back from the dead, it won't be because he wasn't dead. Now, this is probably the most important part of the study at this point. We need to make sure that people understand that Jesus was dead already when He shed His blood that cleansed us of all of our sins. They need to know that. And I tell them, write it down. Write it down on your chart. Jesus was already dead when He shed His blood that cleanses us from all of our sins. That's important, folks. And these things are going to come full circle at the end of our study. Let's continue on about this blood. Ephesians 1 and 7. Paul says, in whom we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Paul says the blood offers to us two things. It offers to us redemption, and it offers to us forgiveness. Now, what are those things? Well, it's easier for most people probably to understand what forgiveness is. When you're studying with them, most people have a more general idea about what forgiveness is. It's the the loosing of a debt. Right? So say, Lyle, I owe you $200. I don't owe Lyle $200, but say I did. And I come to Lyle and I say, Lyle, here's your $200. Well, my debt's paid. I paid him. I owed Lyle $200. I paid him $200. My debt's paid. I go on about my business. I come to Lyle and I say, Lyle, I cannot pay you. I cannot pay you that $200. He says, don't worry about it, Neil, go on. That's forgiveness. He loosed me from my debt. He forgave my debt. If I paid him, it's not forgiven. It's paid. The blood of Jesus forgives our sins. It it looses us from a debt that we cannot pay. You can't do it. You can't outweigh all the wrong you did with all the good that you'll do. It don't matter. You've already done wrong. It don't matter. So the blood of Jesus offers to us forgiveness. It looses us from our debt. And it redeems us back to God. That root word, redeem, means to buy back. So what God does with the blood of Jesus, His Son, is He first forgives our sin debt. Now remember, sin is what separated us from God in the first place, and we couldn't have a relationship with Him. But now He's forgiven our debt because of the blood of Jesus, 
And now we can have a relationship with Him. We can be brought to Him. And that's how He does it, with the blood of Christ. He redeems us, buys us back to Himself so that we can enjoy all the blessings of being a child of God. What a great, wonderful blessing that is. But I want to tell you something. If you don't have the blood of Jesus, you do not have forgiveness, and you do not have redemption. You cannot have those things without the blood of Jesus Christ. You have to have it. You have to have it. The blood's important, folks. <clears throat> Romans 1 and 16. This is a, a popular scripture. A lot of people know this scripture. It, whether they're, they're Christians or not, they, they probably heard something about this scripture. Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. People quote that scripture and they say they're not ashamed of the gospel, but why not? Paul tells us why not, because it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, when I get to this point in the study with people, the questions that we ask are critical. They're important. And a question that I always ask when I get to this point in our study, and we, we, we've read this scripture and we've talked about it a little bit, is I ask, what is the gospel? What is it? And I always encourage them to write their answer down on the chart. Now listen, when you ask people a question, you're prompting them to answer you. You want them to respond to the question you asked. You close your mouth and listen. That's important. Nobody wants to listen to somebody who's not willing to listen themselves. So you ask a question, they respond, you listen. And no matter how long they ramble on and, and what their answer is, you're quiet and you're listening to their response. And then you ask them, write that down. Write that down. That's important. I think it's really important. <clears throat> what is the gospel? Write your answer down. Now, the next thing that they ask you is, is that right? You don't respond. You don't respond this way, particularly. When they ask you, is that right? You don't slam it down their throat, beat them over the head with your Bible, tell them how stupid they are. This is a pointless engagement. I don't know why I'm here. Because you don't win no friends that way. Instead, you tell them that the Bible has the answer. Take the pressure off of you. You're not the authority. You're just a guy delivering a message. That's it. You tell them the Bible has the answer because it does. And that's where you need to leave it. Then you go on to the answer. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel. So he says, Boys, listen up. I'm just going to tell you what it is. Which I have preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein you stand, by which also you are saved. I always point this out. Romans 1 and 16, the gospel is the power of God to save us. It's the means that God has chosen to forgive our sins and redeem us back to Himself so we can have a relationship with Him. 1 Corinthians 15 and 2, it's by which also... You're saved if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you, unless you believed in vain. Verse 3, For I have delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures. There's your answer. What is the Gospel? It's the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I always put that fourth arrow on there, when I'm studying with people in their homes, I typically take a note journal, uh, words, what are they? A notepad, and I draw these things out for them. 
I'm a visual learner. I like to see things. And I think it's important when people can see these things. But I always put that fourth arrow on there because we're going to talk about it in a minute. They need to know that Jesus died for their sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. But He's coming back, friends. He's coming back. Now, Mark 1 and 15. Jesus is beginning His ministry. He's walking down the Sea of Galilee. He's fisting to call Peter, Andrew, James, and John. And He says that the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Of course, Jesus wants us to believe the gospel, believe that He died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day. But He wants us to repent and believe the gospel. Now, the question is, what is repentance? What does it mean to repent? It's a change of mind. It begins here, and it results in a change of actions. So we've got to first make up our mind that we're no longer going to serve ourselves, serve our mind and our flesh. We're no longer going to go after the world and seek the things that the world has to offer us and try and fill this God-sized hole in our heart with these things. But we're going to turn from those things and we're going to go and run after and toward the living God and allow Him to satisfy every desire, every need, every want that we've ever had and ever will have. That's repentance. You turn around. I'm headed this way, living a life of drunkenness and adultery and fornication and, and drugs and whatever. And then you turn around and you chase God. You go after Him and allow Him to satisfy all that you need. That's repentance. Now Jesus, He gives us two examples in Luke chapter 13. I want to point these out to you. Beginning in verse number 1, 13.1, the Bible says that there were present at that season some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said unto them, Suppose ye that these Galileans were worse sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things. So here's what Jesus is doing in Luke 13. He is confronting a very Jewish mind. Jews are extremely superstitious people. They always have been. And so here they are, they come to Jesus and they say, hey, these Galileans, Pilate and his men, they went and killed them with the sword and they took their blood, they went into the temple and they mixed them together. They practically broke every law on the books. He asked the question, are they worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered these terrible things? Jews would walk into a room, they see a man on the ground, this man is lame, he can't walk, he's dumb, he can't speak, he's blind, he can't see, he's deaf, he can't hear, and they'd say... This man's parents were terrible sinners. Horrible. The worst there was. Jesus says that's not the case. But if you do not repent, you will likewise perish. You'll be just like these Galileans. Verse number 3, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you'll all likewise perish. Verse 4, or those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell. And slew them. Think ye that there are worse sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? They're not. He says, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you'll all likewise perish. If you don't change your life, and we need to tell people this, we want them to believe the gospel. We want them to believe that Jesus died for their sins, that He was buried and raised from the dead. But if they don't change their life, if they're not willing to make the change, and it starts with making a decision. Who are you going to serve? You're going to serve yourself or serve God? If you serve yourself, you'll perish. 
You serve God, you have life eternal. Jesus says you need to repent, change your ways, change your life, and believe the gospel. Now, Paul tells us here in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 to 9, some very important things. This is where we touch on the coming back for just a moment. Verse 7, Paul says, "...unto you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on those who know not God and that obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power." So, Jesus is coming back someday, folks. He's coming back with a purpose. He's a man on a mission. In Revelations, the Bible tells us that when Jesus comes back, His face will be on fire. And when He comes, people are going to beg the mountains to fall on them, to shield them from the glory of the Lamb of God. What a terrible day for those people. Paul says He's coming back. And He's coming back, a man on a mission, to take vengeance and to dish out everlasting destruction. Does that sound good? Is that what you want for yourself? Is that what you want for your neighbor? Your co-worker, your kids? Because there's coming a day. There will be a day of reckoning. He's coming to take vengeance on who? On those that do not know God and those that do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a life and death situation we're talking about. This is something that ought to be taken seriously. If you ever take anything seriously, you need to take this seriously. People need this message or they're going to face the vengeance and everlasting destruction of God. We have it and we can take it to people. Second question that I ask is, have you obeyed the gospel? Maybe you're here tonight and you need to ask yourself that question. I encourage you to do that. Consider these things and ask yourself this question. Have you obeyed the gospel? Now, when you ask these questions, do you want them to respond? They say, yes, I have obeyed the gospel. You say, how? How did you obey the gospel? They tell you how they obeyed the gospel. You say, write it down. Write it down. When folks answer you, don't consider them to be dishonest. I'm not saying that there aren't people who are going to be dishonest with you, because there most certainly are. But you need to consider the fact that they're being as sincere as possible in this moment in their life. And they're answering you honestly. You asked an honest question, have you obeyed the gospel? They answered you honestly, yes, no, I don't know. They're being honest. Don't beat them over the head. This is an important question. How do you obey the gospel? I kind of got ahead of myself there a little bit, but all these things flow together when I'm studying with somebody. Have you obeyed the gospel? If so, how do you obey the gospel? And whatever their answer is, I tell them, write it down. Write it down. Now, I want to tell you a little secret. It's not really a secret, but I want to tell you something that I've observed. Because of the questions that I asked through this study, whatever their answer was to what is the gospel tells me whether or not they've obeyed it or not. If they answer incorrectly to what is the gospel, they say it's the Word of God, they say it's the first four books of the Bible, whatever they say, 
If they don't know that the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, they could not have possibly obeyed it. And I tell people that. When we get to this point, I ask them, how do you obey the gospel? I have them write it down. I tell them the Bible has the answer. And I give them the answer. Romans chapter 6, beginning in verse number 3. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of His death, we shall also be in the likeness of His resurrection. This is the answer to how you obey the gospel. But we need to point a few things out to people. There's a reason that baptism is the very last thing on this chart. It's because I've experienced when I talk to people and you mentioned baptism early on, they're done. They turn you off, man. I don't want that. I want them to hear me out. I want to be able to get to this point. And when I get here, I want to be able to explain why baptism. We say baptism. You need to be baptized. Why? Why baptism? This is why baptism. Because we're baptized into the death of Jesus Christ. Remember earlier on in the study I said, I tell people to write this down, remember it. It's important. We're going to come full circle back to it. Here we are, full circle. When Jesus was hanging on that cross, He was dead already. They came and they stabbed Him in His heart. And blood and water came out. It was in Jesus' death that He shed His blood that cleanses us from all of our sins. And when we're baptized into the death of Jesus Christ, we come in contact with that blood that cleanses us from all of our sins. That's why baptism. That's why you have to obey the gospel. Because you need the blood, friend. And without the blood, you don't have redemption and you don't have forgiveness. That's why baptism we're baptized into His death, we're buried with Him by baptism into death, and then we're resurrected, we're raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, and then we walk in newness of life. We live out, we live out our repentance. That's why baptism. Now, like I said, there's typically some dialogue. There's typically some comments, some questions that always come up in every study that you have to answer that may not be on your chart. Don't be intimidated by that. I want to share with you something that Jay shared with me when I first began doing personal Bible studies with people. Because I was intimidated by that. Well, what if they ask me a question I can't answer, Jay? He says, tell them, hey, that's a good question. Let me write that down. I'll get back to you. That's honest, folks. You can't possibly be ready for every question that anyone ever asks you. Detail can't even do that. Write it down. I'll get back to you. There's going to be questions. But I think this is very clear. This is why baptism. Because when we're baptized in the death of Jesus Christ, we come in contact with the blood that cleanses us from all of our sins. Now, i got one last scripture. One last scripture. And this is the way I always do this. You may not feel comfortable doing this. That's okay. Do what works for you. Do what you think is the best thing that you can do. All right? But this is what I do. I tell them I want them to read this last scripture out loud. And then I want them to give their response to God. Not me. I'm just the messenger. We come. We present the information. We present the material. We try to answer questions. 
We want them to feel a sense of urgency because Christ is coming back. And we don't need to put Him off. And if He's knocking at the door, folks, we want Him to answer. But we don't want to bend anybody's arm in the water. So I have them read this scripture out loud. And then they give their response to God. Tonight as we close this study, I hope that this has been a benefit to you. And if you think that this is a tool that you can use and you can put this in your toolbox, by all means use it. I'll be glad to get you a copy of it, email it to you, give you a chart, whatever it is that you want. If you're here tonight and you have not obeyed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, folks, He's coming back. And I want you to be ready and the Lord wants you to be ready so that we can rejoice at His return together. Let's read this scripture and let's stand and sing. Now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling upon the name of the Lord. If you need to call upon the name of the Lord tonight, please do so as we stand and sing this song that's been selected.